Welcome to Revival from the Bible, a daily devotional podcast designed to help more people get into God's Word and get more out of the Word. I'm Ben Blakey. Today's passage is Numbers 5-7. through Let's say that there is a big battle that is about to happen. And before the battle happens, I take you on a tour of the camps of the two armies that are about to fight. And in one camp, you find a camp that is clean, a camp that is united and and there's trust among the people within that camp, a camp of people that are dedicated and blessed and organized. And then on the other side, you see a camp that's filthy. You see a camp filled with people who obviously don't trust each other and a camp where you get the sense that people really don't want to be there. Which side do you think is going to win the battle? That That's not meant to be a hard question. It's pretty easy. You're going to feel better about the camp that's clean, united, organized, that has a sense of purpose. And a lot of those things are going to come through as we go through warriors, I mean, numbers five through seven. And remember the context, this is a book that has, should have more of a military feel uh, where they're, they're counting the men for war in chapter one. They're arranging the camp for it to move about. And now we're going to come through and, and get into some specific things that God sets up for his people. And the first thing, the first couple things are actually throwbacks to Leviticus, things we talked about there. It talks first about the need to remove from the camp those who are uh, unclean uh, for various reasons, whether that's leprosy, a discharge, contact with the dead. God needs this camp to be clean. And then you get into this principle of restoration and restitution, something that we talked about. Uh, You you see, when someone realizes that they've done something wrong, uh, they are to confess that sin. And then it says, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. And so we even talked about that in Leviticus. When we do something wrong, it's God's design for us to go and make it right. Now, we we are not Israelites living under this specific law, but that principle very much still applies. When you realize that you have wronged someone, even if it was unintentional, you go and, and you want to figure out how you can make it right, and you want to make some kind of restitution. And, and think about these things in this context of military, right? You want a clean camp, You don't want people getting sick with leprosy in your camp of your soldiers. You want this camp also not to feel like, man, there's all kinds of beefs and problems between these people. No, you want this camp to feel united and that they have made things right. I mean, how many movies have you seen where where part of the plot line is the bad guys all end up fighting against each other and that's how the good guys escape or that's how the good guys win? You you want a team that is united. Next, the, the rest of chapter 5 really focuses on this test for adultery, where if a husband is suspicious of his wife, and it's a very interesting uh, passage because there's this water uh, of bitterness that brings a curse. 
And I think there's some debate about whether it was just the the stress of this would be so monumental for someone that that is guilty that they would somehow, you know, crumble under the pressure, or if it's like no, that this water would actually do what the text is saying. And I usually think when it seems pretty clear the text is saying something, that's what we should go with. Uh, so I, I think the water would actually have somehow through God's sovereignty some effect on the woman who drank it, who was guilty of adultery. Now, this passage feels uh, like some others that we read here in the first five books of the Bible. It does feel pretty antiquated because no, if you come to me, husband, if you set up a counseling appointment with me and you're concerned that your wife is committing adultery uh, and breaking your marriage covenant, I am not going to get some bitter water and perform some ceremony to see, you know, if her stomach swells and her thigh falls. We're not going to do that. But I do think you you do see here it's important for marriages to be built on trust. It is a legitimate and real problem if there is mistrust in a marriage relationship, particularly when it would come to something like adultery. So especially for every married person reading this passage and listening to this podcast, I actually do think that's one of the main takeaways you can have from the reading today is you need to spend some time praying about your marriage and you need to spend some time examining, am I doing everything I can to build trust in my marriage? First and foremost, are you being pure? That, that's that's a great way. You know, you don't have to hide things when you have nothing to hide. So if you are being pure, that's going to help build trust because if you're not being pure, your default is you're going to be tempted to hide that up and that's going to lead to some level of dishonesty and lead to some level of mistrust. Be pure in your heart, in your eyes, in your actions and and seek to keep pursuing that and that will help build trust. Also, just think about the ways you, you communicate love and affection to uh, your spouse, that done consistently and backed up, not just saying one thing, but doing another should build trust over time. So pray for a lot of trust in your marriage and work to pursue building a relationship of trust in response to this passage. Chapter six is about the Nazarite vow. Uh, and you see some of the stipulations here, uh, this Nazarite, that they're to separate from wine and really anything to do with grapes. They're not supposed to uh, cut their hair. They are not supposed to defile themselves with a dead body. The most famous Nazarite in the Bible is probably Samson, uh, who was supposed to be a lifelong Nazarite. I think that's a common misconception. Some people think of this Nazarite vow and think it was uh, a lifetime thing for everyone. No, that was probably something unique actually about Samson. It probably wasn't uh, lifelong for others, was probably more focused on a specific period of time. It seems possible if you look at Acts 18, 18, that the apostle Paul once, uh, at least once, engaged in a Nazarite vow. It talks about having his hair cut at a certain place to fulfill a vow to the Lord? Is it possible it was some other vow with some similar things? I, I guess so, but this is the one that we see in the Bible. But what the text doesn't say, it doesn't spell out, I have questions, I'd love to know more about why. Why would someone take this specific 
vow. And obviously, in a general sense, it's it's to some level about uh, consecration to the Lord and, and a promise made, a commitment made to the Lord. And this was a way to show that. Uh, but why a specific person might want to do this, the text does not spell out in great detail. Uh, and so we have to live with what uh, the text says. But that is, I think, a reminder that all of us, we don't need to... Um, do all of this, although, I mean, every teenager at some point probably wanted to justify their long hair, why, oh, mom and dad, I've taken a Nazarite vow. Uh, no, that's that's not the spirit of it, but we should all be consecrated to uh, the Lord. And that's another thing to check our hearts, say, are you committed to God? Are you committed to his ways? That's what we should all seek. Uh, next in chapter six, we get to this ironic blessing. And this is a blessing that God gives to Moses to give to Aaron, and this is how he is to bless the people. And these words will no doubt be familiar to you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so while this was specific to Aaron and the people of Israel, you'll still hear this used maybe sometimes at, at the end of a service, uh, given in, in some in some way, shape, or form, a part of a benediction. And I think that that's a, a good and fine thing. This is something we should all want, right? Who among us should not desire to be able to say that the Lord is blessing me and keeping me? The Lord is making his face to shine upon me and being gracious to me. The Lord is lifting up his countenance upon me and giving me peace. I think we all want that. And I think sometimes when we look at these Old Testament blessings, especially this one, I just think, well, we we should all desire the blessing of God. How do we get the blessing of God? Well, ultimately, it's going to be through Jesus Christ. Or I think about um, then the character that comes if you are in Christ. I think of the Beatitudes. What's the first word of every single one of the Beatitudes? Blessed. So we all should desire to be blessed. And that's where the good news of this passage is, if you are in Christ, uh, you you can trust that these things are true of you. The the Lord, if you are one of his people in Christ, the Lord will bless you and keep you. The Lord will make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord will lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So there's a reason why these words have resonated outside of just Aaron in in gathering the people of Israel. There's a reason why these words have resonated even and are still used today. They are beautiful words that express the blessing, I think, that is available to God's people. And now, just briefly on chapter 7, I don't know why you'd ever be in this situation, but if you ever want to just say, hey, I bet I could memorize an 89-verse chapter in the Bible in one day— This is your best bet because you'll just notice the chapter gets very repetitive. It's talking about them consecrating the tabernacle. Remember that the tabernacle is still a very new and fresh thing. And so there's going to be these offerings and gifts that are brought one for each tribe or a certain amount, depending on what this specific item is for each tribe. So this chapter will be very repetitive because you'll notice it starts with the tribe of Judah and then the names of the leader who's bringing the offering and the tribe change, but all the other words in you know 12 sections here are all exactly the same. 
pointing us to these offerings for the consecration of the temple. If you really want to note things, it starts with the tribe of Judah and they were on the east side of the tabernacle and then it works its way clockwise around the tabernacle in how all of these tribes were to bring their offerings for the consecration of the tabernacle. But the most amazing thing about the chapter is at the end, Verse 89, and when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, and it spoke to him. So the whole point of the tabernacle is for God to dwell among his people. And here we see in verse 89, that's exactly what's happening because God is speaking to Moses from above the mercy seat. The tabernacle is meant to show this presence of God. And another reminder, another opportunity for us to praise God that now we have access to God through Jesus Christ. God dwells with us through his Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We have amazing blessings as New Testament Christians, and and we see some of that amazement just in what God does through the tabernacle. But I hope you see this army, they they, they are set up for success if, if they believe God and do what he says. Now, that's where we'll run into some problems later in Numbers, or as we're calling it, Warriors. Thanks for digging into God's Word with me today on Revival from the Bible. For more resources, check out RevivalFromTheBible.com. To learn more about Compass Bible Church Treasure Valley, go to compassbible.tv. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.